0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. I'm your host, Gabe B.C., and for those of you just joining us for the first time, this is a podcast about the intersection of art and technology. Each week, I'll be having a conversation with another artist, curator, inventor, robot, museum specialist, or CEO about how creative people are working with tech. If you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear more about, feel free to send me an email at gabe at thestateoftheart.org. All right, let's get this week's episode started off. Happy Halloween, state of the art. Uh, Today, we have a very special guest on the show, Abhishek Singh. Uh, Not necessarily Halloween related, although you have made projects that have to do with uh, horror. Uh, We'll talk about one of those today. So if you're listening today on Halloween, uh, I hope you're having a great holiday, trying on some costumes, maybe made with some technology as well. Uh, Today, we have a wearer of many hats, experienced startup founder, part artist, part engineer, with a love for building delightful physical and digital products and experiences. Uh, His work has been featured on the BBC, TechCrunch, Mashable, Wired, Verge, Vice, Motherboard, just to name a few. Uh, Thank you so much for being here, Abhishek Singh.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: So uh, Abhishek, how do you describe what you do? You do a lot of different things, it seems like.
1: I do a lot of different things, and I actually kind of hate this question because I find it so hard to answer. Um, As you kind of said it, I'm like part artist, part engineer part maker, though I'm not like traditionally trained in either of those fields. So my current description that I just came up with a few days ago was that I'm an experimental prototyper. So I just kind of like work with new technologies and uh, see what I can do with them, how far I can push them, and whether I can create experiences that might not be practical right now, but might be practical in the near future.
0: And how did this all start for you? Like, do you have a background in uh, experimental prototypes? Uh, <laughs> like, where are you from? How did you get started making this kind of work?
1: Yeah, so uh, that's also a-, a long, drawn-out story in itself. I, I didn't find myself um, where I am right now in a very kind of like linear fashion. So I like bounced around and found myself now where i am which i'm i'm still not sure where i am okay. but yeah <laughs> I, uh, what what at least you described me as so um i i actually did an undergrad in business uh, hmm. so i didn't have uh, as i said an art background or an engineering background i was always very interested in uh, technology i was interested like in the design side of things and i was interested in building things by hand like growing up i used to like play with lego and play with all these uh, physical things and just like b- building things Um, And then at some point of time, I kind of realized that I had all these ideas in my head, but I had no real way of kind of like implementing them. So I left everything. I was like, okay, the way to build things is to infuse them with technology. Uh, So I need to learn learn how to code. So I took some time off, started learning how to code, uh, worked on a few startups uh, just as ways to get further into programming, into coding and building. And then eventually I found myself um, at NYU's ITP program, uh, which as some people say, is like an art school for engineers and an engineering school for artists. And since I was neither of those, I was like, hey, this is perfect. Maybe I get a taste of uh, both worlds. And that's where I got uh, more into uh, new mediums, new technologies, and building just fun, delightful projects with
0: them. Yeah, and how do you start making these projects in the beginning? Like, I'm uh, let's start, I guess, with your Super Mario project, yeah. uh, which kind of makes sense for Halloween. Here, you're yeah. you're actually dressed as Mario in the video for this project. Uh, how do yeah, there's you, a little bit of cosplay going on in that. <laughs> Are you interested in cosplay in general?
1: Oh, I I'm really interested in. Looking at people dressing up in a cosplay, not necessarily myself, because I really see that as a as a like a re- really amazing artistic medium, and mm-hmm. the effort that goes into creating some of these getups and some of these outfits are like just completely amazing. Yeah. So yeah. in
0: this piece, uh, you've created Super Mario in AR. So how did this start? Like, how are you inspired to make this in the first place?
1: Uh so. Uh, Again, I I never set out to make Super Mario in AR, uh, but I'll tell you the process that kind of got me there. Uh, So I started off first uh, being like, okay, I want to kind of experiment with AR. This was my first first real uh, project with AR. I was like interested in the space. I was intrigued by it. And I had decided that now when I was going to learn a technology, the best way to learn it was by building a project in the space. So I was interested in the space. I had access to uh, a HoloLens, which is uh, a $3,000 device that I would otherwise never had had access to thanks to NYU's ITP program. So I was like, okay, let me go ahead and kind of build something with this. Now where Mario came about was like growing up up, like most of us, like Mario was one of my favorite video games mm-hmm. growing up. <laughs> um, and at the back of my mind, it wasn't really there at the time, but um, I I began like most people begin is just uh, by just like experimenting and prototyping with a few very basic projects in the space. So literally the first project that I, uh, that I did was take a cube. And this is like basically AR 101 is take a cube and try to sp- place it in the space around me while placing one of those cubes. I actually placed one slightly above my head. And for some reason, I walked under it. And when I looked up, like all these memories from my childhood suddenly came uh, rushing back and I was like, holy shit, this is Mario's brick. I am Mario and I should jump to break that brick. And that was (laughs) literally the inception of the idea. And from there, I kind of took it into building out the entire Mario experience. And
0: so in this experience, you act, you embody Mario in some way. And there's bricks that appear in front of you in the park. And you can actually jump and break these bricks and, you know, eat mushrooms and that kind of thing?
1: Yes. So, so you can <laughs> kind of imagine it as me stepping into Mario's shoes and me being Mario in the game. So rather than controlling Mario on a 2D flat interface uh, through a controller, I myself was Mario. And that was something that AR as a medium uh, allowed, right? It allowed me to step into the shoes to see this entire virtual world around me and to interact, it, uh, interact my physical body. With these virtual digital elements that were around the space, so so yeah, it was basically. Um an exact recreation of the iconic first level of Super Mario Brothers, uh, except it was life life size. It was scaled up for a, a real human being, um, and at the end of it, it's uh, it uh, extended about 110 meters long. So that <laughs> what you see on that 2D flat screen, that you the side scroller that you sc- scroll through, when you apparently extend it out to real life, it's 110 meters long.
0: And do you think there's a future for embodied gameplay with augmented reality? Like, do you, I mean, people have obviously played Pokemon Go. That was the biggest probably AR game that's come about in the last 5 years or so. Do you think, do you see that uh, continuing in different ways?
1: Yeah, definitely. I think like AR and VR both uh they provide a lot of like potential for embodied gaming and that's something that I uh, personally I'm also like really interested in and that's why like this was one of the first uh, projects that I built because I I growing up or even like later on I always like imagined myself being in the game mm-hmm. and I, I, and also Kind of being interested in health, being interested in in fitness, and also being kind of like a sports enthusiast myself, I, I thought this would be a, an extremely fun, challenging, and like fitness oriented way to uh, to create uh, something that's that's just both fun at the same time. It gives you a good workout hmm. because I personally don't really like the gym. Okay, mm-hmm. I find the gym really boring. So I'm always trying to find ways to um, make my workout more exciting, and I feel. Embodied gaming might just be one of those.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I wouldn't have thought that Super Mario would one day be used for fitness.
1: Well, it was quite a workout. By the end of it, I was a little little bit uh, fatigued.
0: So other games that you've worked with in AR, Mm -hmm. you've also recreated Street Fighter, another uh, classic video game in AR. How does that piece work?
1: So so that uh, piece started off uh, um, as an exploration into multiplayer AR gaming. Uh, So uh, Super Mario Brothers was... How can I create a large outdoor um, experience, a single person experience? And then from there, I was like, okay, this is something that I would play by myself. But is there something that I can create that I can play with other people, right? Can we bring that social aspect into it? And then again, uh, going back into my childhood days, I, I remember just playing Street Fighter on these arcade machines with my sister all, all day, all afternoon, kind of long. So that was kind of the idea that, okay, let me take something that I personally enjoyed, uh there was definitely a, a nostalgia aspect to it. And then bring that, again, 2D arcade kind of gameplay into the real world. And Street Fighter also kind of made self- sense because it was like Street Fighter. And I was like actually now taking Street Fighter and putting it into the real streets. <laughs> so so th- so that was also kind of like it was just like a funny play on it.
0: But in this in this experience, you don't embody one of the characters in Street Fighter. You're controlling them, right? Yes. So it's the idea that you are battling someone else. In yes. physical space, through with these virtual characters. Yeah,
1: so so this I kind of uh, like to call like a virtual gladiator ring, hmm. in which you are the controllers of these virtual gladiators. So you're on either side of this ring, and you are watching them compete right in front of you. But you're you're competing against someone else.
0: Do you think that eventually we'll have sort of relationships with these avatars or game characters? Like, I mean,
1: I think we already have relationships with avatars and game characters. Like people, people are so uh, kind of attached to specific characters. They. Uh, uh, as the character evolves through gameplay, as they uh, evolve through these storylines, we definitely build a bond with them. So bringing them into the world and out into the world around us, I think that will just further help build that relationship with them.
0: Do, you, do you, Are you worried about that when it comes to AR, that we're sort of like training these characters to fight each other or something? You know, it's sort of like realistic Pokemon in a way. I mean, you, you do see your opponent in the background of this AR experience yes. still, but you're fighting them through these other virtual characters that you're training. Is that problematic to you in any way?
1: Um, I mean, see, there there, there are a lot of video games which have uh, some element of fighting and violence and all attached to them, and they've been there forever, um... And I am definitely not not the one to be like, oh, video games incite violence in any way. Mm-hmm. So I think I think definitely I don't see that that as a problem. I just see that as an another um, avenue for creative expression.
0: Hmm. Okay, so yeah, I mean, you definitely use video games uh, as creative expression constantly. It's interesting. yeah.
1: So I think also the, a reason for kind of like using video games is um, a lot of times when I build these projects, it's. Um, they're not necessarily practical right now, but they could possibly be practical in the near term as the technology evolves. Um, so so a lot of these are also just to get a conversation going, to get people kind of interested in the field to show what is possible or what is almost going to be possible soon. And I feel like video games and using nostalgia and using characters that people associate with and pe- people um, um, kind of uh, connect with is a good way of getting those ideas and those projects out there. Uh, so a lot of the reasons why I use Mario I use kind of Street Fighter because I know that they have a huge audience already behind mm-hmm. them. They have a lot of uh, people from um, youngsters all the way up to my age and beyond who have grown up with them, who connect with them instantly. And it's not so much about demoing the technology, but if you can demo the technology in a way that people are able to connect with it, then it has a much a bigger impact.
0: Hmm. So you are hoping to inspire people to create their own pieces, or you want them to kind of reflect on how the technology is used?
1: I think it's a combination of the two. So uh, I, I want people to use this as a way to also uh, make their own pieces, uh, which is why in most cases, I always open source the code. I always um, release all the assets uh, online so that people can use that as kind of a stepping board uh, to stepping stone to build their own pieces. And at the same time, it's also good to get people excited about fields that I'm excited in because like everybody says, okay, AR, VR is suffering from a content problem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if you can get more people excited about it, if you get get more people developing on it, uh, then that's what's going to create more content into the space.
0: Yeah, and yeah. do you ever... um worry about people, I mean, I guess not if you're releasing it open source, but yeah. let's say you one of these ideas that you come up with is worth tons and tons of money. Does that ever enter your mind that, oh, you're giving this technology away that you've created?
1: I mean, I think at times, I, maybe, yes. Maybe at sometimes I kind of uh, do feel that, but... Um... I think I, I do better by by sharing because mm. like I also uh, feel like everything that I've learned so far, I've learned it thanks to others sharing it, mm. right? Whether it's uh, either through school or whether it's people just sharing random snippets of information or blog posts or tutorials online, uh, that everywhere that I have reached is thanks to others sharing uh, their knowledge and um, their knowledge and their learnings. So this is kind of maybe my way of kind of giving back.
0: So in a way, you're like teaching too at the yeah. same time. <laughs>
1: yeah, it, it, it is. It is definitely um like. I, education is definitely close to my heart as well. So this is kind of teaching and the way I kind of look at learning and I look at like learning a new skill. I've spent, I've done it like in fairly different ways, right? I've tried the entire way where you just like absorb, inhale all these tutorials and books and hope that you have gained some insight, but that never really helped me at least personally. So for me, it was always that, okay, have some project in mind and build it, and that's the way to learn technology, learn a skill or learn a particular platform. So that's why I, I like to put these out as projects that people can kind of dig deeper into and then hopefully gain something out of it.
0: So what would you suggest to somebody who's interested in, in learning how to make AR or VR? Like if you were to teach them in some way, would you say to come up with the idea first to uh, think about a classic childhood video game? Or <laughs> I mean, like how what's your how do you get people's well, ideas going? Yeah,
1: So I, I don't think it would uh, necessarily be start with an idea. Because in in all these cases, also I never necessarily started with an idea. It was more that hey, this is something I want to explore. Right? Mm. I want to explore how to build something in AR, and through iteration and just through like prototyping and experimentation, the ideas kind of came out themselves. So I think the best way to uh to start with something is you just start playing around with that technology. Play start playing around with the tool. Like for for example the. F- as I mentioned earlier, the way Mario came out was literally taking a one by one meter cube and placing it around in the space. And that led to uh, to Super Mario. So it's just like if you want to learn something, try building something. It could be really rudimentary, really simple, but that will lead you to more complex and more interesting ideas along the way.
0: Yeah, you, <laughs> I'm kind of curious about speaking more of your AR projects. There's also a ring AR piece, which is from the horror movie, The Ring, which is perfect for Halloween here. Yeah. Uh, where you're watching The Ring on TV through AR, I assume, through the HoloLens or through some kind of device. And then the ghost character, the creepy woman <laughs> from The Ring emerges from the screen and walks into your living room. Where, where did this idea, did you want to have this happen to you? It seems like a horrifying experience. <laughs> so
1: I think watching The Ring was definitely a horrifying experience, right? And that was also something that stuck with me clearly because seeing her walk out of that television was something that's been ingrained and etched in my mind kind of forever. So um, again, when building this uh, particular project out, this was at the time when ARKit had just recently launched. the Apple ARKit, which is their augmented reality platform to build on smartphones, had just released. Uh, they still didn't have support for uh, detecting vertical surfaces. They were only being able to detect horizontal surfaces. So I wanted to see if there was a way for me to detect a vertical surface or even mark out a vertical surface and see what I could do with that. Um, Again, I didn't start with an idea that I want her to come out of the TV, but it was just like, oh, can I make uh, the camera detect a vertical surface when it currently doesn't support that? Mm. And then from there, I was like, oh, something should come out of the wall. And that became, oh, something should come out of a television. And that immediately became, oh, I have this clearly impactful memory from my childhood uh, that not only I, but a ton of other people obviously uh, connect and associate with immediately. So it'd be something interesting to do. And, and the other interesting uh, part about uh, this project was that not only was she coming into, uh, into my space, but then she was also following me through the space. So there was some kind of, again, interaction between the physical um, and the human and the, uh, and the virtual. Um, and that was also like really kind of like interesting to me and it was also kind of a a comment on is this where entertainment possibly could be going? Could it be like a new form of like interacting with trailers? Could it be a completely new form of uh, of theater or of, of of filmmaking or of movies? Uh, so, so yeah, it was a it was a bunch of things, but I definitely didn't start with that bigger picture. But as I started building this out, all these questions and these uh, ideas started coming
0: through. Yeah, it's very interesting that you start with a challenge, like just figuring out how to solve the vertical plane in AR. Yeah. And then it ends up with this experience that could be super marketable, but also super interesting for, like you said, theatrical purposes. Yeah. I could see haunted houses in AR. Like, exactly. There's a lot of really interesting storytelling techniques. Exactly. And, and also
1: like the interesting part about uh, this is now that uh, this was with AR kits. So it was, it was something that anybody with a phone on an iPhone in their pocket could experience, uh, which was not necessarily the case with the HoloLens and Super Mario, because that was obviously uh, a much more expensive device. But now we have devices that are capable of... Uh, interacting with AR, like in everybody's pockets.
0: And what, what do you think is missing from AR today, like in the current technology?
1: I think uh, something that's uh, missing, not necessarily in the technology, like the technology, again, is something that um, that I feel will keep evolving. Um, and our goal as like designers and developers is to work within the constraints of those technologies to push them as far as we can and and to create interesting content. Uh, But I think one of the um, challenges that I see, and I don't think I have an answer to this question yet, is just about creating something that is repeatable. So a lot of these experiences that I feel they they, are, they make great one-time experiences, but they don't necessarily bring people back for more, or they don't necessarily bring people back to experience that same thing again. Um, and I think that is definitely a challenge: is that how do you bring people back? And wh- because once you bring people back, that means they're engaged and they're using it on a on a daily or much more regular basis.
0: What do you think it's going to take to bring people back to an AR experience?
1: Um. I'm not, I'm not quite sure yet. I think a lot of my experiments have also been about figuring out what that thing might be. Um, I, I feel definitely a social aspect is one of them because mm-hmm. I did find like playing the Street Fighter game with my friends was something that, oh, that we did on a repeated basis as uh, compared to showing them an, a different experience, them experiencing one and then moving on from there. So I think the social aspect is one of them, uh, being able to uh, interact with people. And maybe to some extent, there's also like some kind of util- utilitarian aspect is that uh, does it make does it make interacting with or, or does it uh, make us uh, make a task that we do on a regular basis uh, easier? Hmm. Or does it um, make it more efficient in a, uh, in a particular way? And that was, that was why one of the other experiences that I created was the one in which you could use your phone as a remote control to control devices in your house. Um, and uh, that was more completely utilitarian. But at the same time, it struck a chord with a bunch of people because now you have like a universal remote control that you literally have to point your camera at any device uh, in your house, um, and you could control it. Again, not uh, practically feasible in the short term because Mm -hmm. I had this extensive setup of a Raspberry Pi with a bunch of relays and everything was plugged into it, and there was like a um, a server that was doing the communication between my phone and um, and the device itself. But it definitely struck a chord because as I said, might not be uh, possible right now, but in the near future, it might be.
0: So these are like forecasts for the future, basically. Yeah. 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 So yeah, you're sort of, a, I know I mentioned this to you before in the past, but you kind of remind me a little bit of like a Tony Stark type, type character here, <laughs> where you're developing all these things that uh, hit a chord with us currently, That yeah. they satisfy certain desires, and in the future, they'll be integrated into our lives. I'm thinking also about your piece... Um, you know you made this phone glove it's called glove phone i guess glove phone yeah. uh, glove couldn't phone. come up with a better name <laughs> <laughs> Glove phone is literally a, a glove that works as a cell phone right yes. you you make certain gestures with your hands and you can hear people through the glove is that the idea
1: Yes so the idea also for this kind of started with that uh when we were small right we all, always uh, we have that one specific sing- uh, signal where you put the thumb against your Ear and you put your pinky finger against your mouth and that denotes a phone. So it was always kind of like interesting to me that could we create that gesture and actually convert it into a phone. So the glove phone was basically that: is that when I make that gesture with my uh, with my hand and I put my thumb against my ear and my pinky finger against my uh, my lips, I could actually speak into it. And I would be able to communicate. Uh, so it was limited in its functionality. That I had like a few numbers, but there were like different gestures to call someone. There was a di- uh, different gesture to shut down the phone. So shutting down the phone was again similar. You just like take that same um, your thumb against uh, your ear, and you just put it down onto the table, and it would end the call.
0: And so, why? <laughs> why would anybody want to use a glove as a phone?
1: I, I'm not too sure. I, I feel like like the the phone already is such a big part. It's like kind of an extension of our body, right? So it is it's like like we don't leave the house without the phone. One second, if the phone is not in our pocket, if we don't feel it in our pocket, we like freak out. So it was just like, oh, can we take the phone and actually integrate it even closer into our body? And, And the closest thing at that point of time was, okay, just like, let's put it as a glove onto our hands since it's almost always stuck to our hands anyway.
0: So this is so weird to me because I was watching this show recently on HBO called Years and Years, where every episode they jump a certain amount of time. And on that show, people get, uh, sensors surgically implanted into their fingers so they can have a a phone that's made out of their hands, basically. Like, they yeah. can answer it using the same gestures that you created with Glove Phone. In what year did you make this piece?
1: Uh, this was, I think, 2014. Maybe. So this is,
0: like, four, five years ago, yeah. and this show just came out this year, and so they're... It's bizarre to me. Like, I think that... I don't know if someone saw that. <laughs> has that happened I mean,
1: with, m- Maybe they have been inspired by it.
0: Has that happened with other pieces that you've created, where you create something and then you see it appear in pop culture or actually released as a product?
1: Yeah, I think, like... Um, I, um, speaking about uh, the Amazon Alexa project. So I'll just give you like a quick brief about what the project was. So the project was, um, essentially, how can we get Amazon Alexa, uh, which is a a voice assistant to respond to sign language. Mm. And uh, that kind of started out with the question is that if uh, voice is becoming the future of computing, um, and the primary way of interacting with our devices, what happens to all all, uh, these people or this huge uh, population of people who have difficulty hearing or speaking? And how do we are we thinking about them as designers and developers? Are we uh, creating interfaces? Um, are we taking all people into consideration while making these claims that okay, voice is the only uh, is going to be the only method of interaction with devices in the future? So that's how it kind of started. So the Amazon Alexa project was can I get Amazon Alexa to respond to sign language?
0: And Amazon Alexa is the assistant that it's in your house, right? Like that, the vo- voice assistant.
1: Exactly. So it's just mm-hmm. that that cylinder that sits in a lot of kitchens and a lot of uh, living rooms all over the place. Um, so uh, with that... I'll explain a little bit uh, about the pro- uh, uh, about the project in a bit, but yeah, with that one I did see, and the timing might be completely coincidental, but uh, just I think a month after releasing that project online, um, Amazon released a feature uh, targeted specifically at people who have uh, difficulty speaking or hearing, mm-hmm. called Tap to Speak, in which you could actually tap on the Alexa um, and activate it without having to say the word Alexa.
0: And so, yeah, t- tell us a little bit more about Alexa Sign Language. Yeah, then. so the
1: Alexa Sign Language uh, project, um, as I said, it just started with this question, is that um, how, how do we design devices that are inclusive for everybody? Um, so it was kind of like a hack. It was definitely a hack. It wasn't the most efficient way of getting Alexa to respond to sign language. But to kind of explain how it was set up, uh, I had a laptop, which was um, a laptop with a webcam, uh, which was running my um, machine learning uh, model, uh, which was taking in images from uh, f- from the webcam, and that was me performing the sign languages. It uh, was the sign language. It was interpreting that, converting that into text. Uh, that text would then be read out by the laptop, uh, which this this audio would be picked up by the Alexa that was right next to the laptop. Uh, she would, of course, unknowingly knowing whether it's coming from a human or another machine, would respond uh, to the query, uh, which would then get transcribed back into text for the user to be able to uh, read the response. Mm. So yeah, so it was definitely like a convoluted method of getting Alexa to respond to sign language. But the idea was not to provide a solution, but more to generate a discussion. Um, And it definitely succeeded in that aspect. And also knowing that we have so many devices today, say like the um, Alexa Echo, which has a screen, it has a camera, it has all that built into one single device is that. Why could we not have this kind of system built into the device directly? Hmm. Right?
0: Do you think that they purposely left a screen out of the Alexa?
1: Um, so they do have uh, they do have one uh, one Alexa version which has a screen inbuilt into it. Um, that wasn't definitely the version one, but uh, they have released that. Uh, so, so yeah.
0: Hmm. And do you uh, do you know ASL sign language?
1: No, I, so I didn't know ASL. Yeah. I, I learned whatever ASL I needed to uh, get uh, to, to build this project um, and to uh, also create the project video. Uh, so the project video is also completely me speaking entirely in American uh, um, American Sign Language, and then to also like think of it that American Sign Language is one of the several types of sign languages that kind of exist, right? Um, so, so yeah, I learned just enough to take me through the, the project, but it definitely got me interested a lot um, in learning more
0: about it. And what was the reaction like from different communities who saw this this video?
1: Um, so um, I think the reaction overall was extremely positive, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it was also a learning um, process for me, um, at myself, because like not knowing someone personally who's deaf, um, there were c- certain assumptions that I made, or there were c- certain things that I, like, like I took the amazon the, the the sign language process very literally like I, I would sign out sign out the phrases word by word whereas, Native speakers in, in sign language definitely have phrases. They have like different ways and like nonverbal cues is some a nonverbal and facial cues are also something which are very important in sign language, which obviously my model did not take into consideration.
0: Your model was using hands only? It was or? just using the hands and okay. just
1: the signs. Um, so, so it was definitely like an educated process for me because there were a lot of people from uh, the deaf community who told me that, hey, th- this might not work as an actual solution because you have not considered X, Y, and Z. And there was no way for me to figure that out until uh, until uh, these actual users, the users, who, who I was wanted this kind of technology to target were to point that out to me. Uh, so it was definitely a positive in the sense that it got that d- discussion started. It got a lot of people from a lot of different parts of the world, speaking different kind of san- sign languages, getting in touch with me, uh, taking the project and building off it further. Uh, so it definitely helped in that. And it also got me a little bit more aware um, as a person of the challenges that uh, people in, uh, in the deaf and mute community kind of face. And um, and yeah, is that don't make assumptions while while designing?
0: Yeah, I mean, and I wonder if it did actually lead to Amazon changing their uh, software. Or something, yeah, it, you know? it would be
1: cool. It would be cool. I mean, they definitely yeah. got in touch with me uh, ab- about it. It would be cool if that was uh, that was something that inspired them or motivated them to implement that. Um, even not, it doesn't really matter. But yeah, it, it would be definitely be amazing if it, it it was one of the things that led to it.
0: Are you continuing to work on this project at all right now? Are you thinking about expanding uh, upon the sign language project?
1: Uh, so I am. Just, uh, this uh, project, also like all my other projects, I release the code online. Mm. Um, I documented it, um, I, I release it online. And anybody who reaches out to me with any kind of questions or concerns about it, I, I help them out. But personally, at this point of time, I'm not pursuing it further.
0: Mm. Yeah, you seem to be also very interested in virtual assistants with your projects. Uh, I mean, your projects are all very different. (laughs) You know, we already talked about like Street Fighter 2 and Alexa Sign Language project. Um, Can you tell me a little about Pico? Pico is a robotic assistant? Or or would you consider this character an assistant or something totally different?
1: Yeah, I'm happy you called it a character because that's how I wanted to design Pico. So Pico is... um, a robotic assistant, a personal desktop robotic assistant inspired by um, Pixar and Walt Disney characters uh, that responds to your queries entirely through animated GIFs and videos. So instead of, say, an Alexa or Siri who responds to your query uh, just through voice or text, uh, Pico would uh, respond with an appropriate animated GIF. Or oh, is it GIF? I'm really not yeah. <laughs> like sure at this point of time. I go like back and forth between between them, but but yeah. Uh, so as an example, if you were to ask Pico, what, how is the weather today? Instead of uh, saying the weather is 23 degrees and sunny, um, you would see a, a a GIF of a clear day with um with a bright shining uh, shining sun.
0: And where do these GIFs get pulled from? Uh
1: so they're mostly from online APIs. So they're they're um. Online portals like Giphy, Uh, there are a couple for videos like Vlipsy.com, which have these huge databases of uh, of GIFs that basically cover the entire gamut of emotions, reactions, or information that you want to kind of display. So it pulls them from that. Uh, The system is not directly to pull. There's also definitely some amount of parsing that needs to be done first uh, to extract the intent of the question and the query, then convert that into what an appropriate response should be, and then query the the GIF API is based on that response. And
0: what do you you mean by the intent of the query? Like, is it using sentiment analysis, like to to see how you are asking these questions of Pico or?
1: Uh, Yeah. So so intent of the query, yes, it is using sentiment analysis and it's also using like natural language processing Mm -hmm. to kind of figure out that, okay, when you're asking uh, what is the weather in New York, then uh, your intent is to find out the weather, and the city is New York. Hmm. So based on that, it can query the appropriate weather API. Uh, once it gets the information from the weather API that it's clear and sunny, then it can go to the uh, the GIF API and then query a GIF that is for clear and sunny.
0: And sometimes you end up with kind of funny reactions from the GIFs too. Yes. like uh, I, I see like Jeff Goldblum pop up pretty often here. <laughs> yeah, so
1: it also, actually, the other interesting part about this and why I was interested in exploring gifs and visual responses as a as an interface and a medium is that uh, they don't get old right because they're continuously evolving the uh, gifs are like kind of like the pulse of the internet uh, they are like a medium that all of us use on like a daily basis to convey everything from emotion to information to like reactions uh, so it just becomes such a natural form of interacting with one another, like human to human. So it was like, can we take that same uh, thing and make it as a form of interaction between a human and a robot? And the entire debate around like social robotics was that, how do we create robots that people can associate with uh, that uh, that are uh, that people can connect with in some way. And most solutions that I saw people were heading towards were creating these kind of extremely mechanical trying to like recreate the human face to convey in, convey in motion and that get kind of goes into like the uncanny valley uh, territory. So I was like instead of that let's just use a medium that we're also familiar with um, that also adds a bit of character and personality uh, to the to the device and use that as a form of uh, communication.
0: Yeah, and you said you mentioned Walt Disney as an inspiration for this character. The character is mechanical and moves also. It's not yes. just the screen that responds it's with It's not
1: kids. just the screen. So there's definitely a bunch, because again, like communication is not only verbal or visual. There's a huge like non-verbal element uh, to communication as well. So th- that is what I wanted to kind of I guess, imbibe into this device was that in addition to everything that's happening on the screen, it also moves to convey emotion. So if it's sad, it will droop down. If it's happy, it'll perk up. Uh, when you like say its name, it's going to like pop up to to kind of signify that its intention is now focused solely on you. And yeah, you using kind of Walt Disney as an inspiration, I did do like a lot of research into how Disney and animators design their characters. Uh, to be relatable, to be approachable, uh, to be cute, to be funny, and use those elements while designing the responses of Pico.
0: And uh, I'm curious why you're so fascinated or sort of attracted to these robotic virtual assistants in, in a couple of your projects.
1: Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I think that the, the, the way this first started, the, the way the initial idea of Pico kind of like came about was that I was spending an increasing amount of time alone in front of the computer uh, coding, designing, doing whatever, right? And and that's where I see like a lot of um, work today kind of going is people are just sitting in cubicles or just sitting in front of their computers, like typing away all day long. Um, and it kind of became that, hey, if I'm spending so much time in front of my computer, it would be kind of cool if I have this kind of companion to like help me get through the day, right? mm. like pro- provide these little moments of delight and entertainment. Um, and just like yeah, just help me, as I said, get through the day. And and that was where the first initial seed of this idea uh, kind of started, is that could this robotic companion not only give me information from time to time, but also keep me entertained um, and just keep me motivated. So that was where this kind of started. So the initial um, name for Pico was actually Productivity Bot. <laughs> so it was like, oh, can you he help me stay productive and energized through the day? And then it evolved into this.
0: Yeah, Pico is a much better name than yeah, Productivity Bot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you think in the future we're going to have robots as kind of pets?
1: Um, I don't think you... I mean, we, we possibly could, right? Uh, we could possibly have robots as... We've already seen Ibo, which is Sony's uh, robotic dog. Um, and how big of um, I mean. Uh, maybe it wasn't a completely commercial success, but it definitely had um, it had its huge following. Like I, I've read, read articles about people who have gone to extreme lengths and extreme lengths, both in terms of effort as well as finances to be able to uh, secure parts to repair their eyeballs because they're mm. so attached to them, right? And even when you look at Roombas, there's a statistic that I think nine out of 10 people have named their Roomba. So, so people, I think, have this inherent desire to connect with robots um, and inherent a desire to like connect with inanimate things. So I don't feel it's far fetched to be like robots, as pets or robots as companions uh, someday in the future, because there have already been indications of that happening in the past.
0: I think it's interesting though, because we there's this other side of technology where we spend so much time with our devices, right? Our phones Mm -hmm. in particular, but we don't give our phones names for the most part. And we also throw them out every two years now, you know, Um, but because you personified these robots, you feel a connection to them that you might not feel with your phone.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I think, uh, um, and that's what with Pico, is like he has a face, he has these glasses that he wears, he has eyes that are uh, that are blinking, and and all of that was to see that whether I can get people to associate with Pico in some way and and personify him as as you like rightly said, and in many ways that did succeed because you would never call your phone a he or a she or like assign some kind of pronoun to the uh to to the to the device, but I saw a lot of people uh, doing that with Pico. Hmm. Uh, which was very very interesting and and another interesting thing was like one of the earlier versions of, of of pico he had this like kind of like defect uh when he in which he would like randomly for some electrical grounding issue <laughs> just like freak out and like just completely uh, like go berserk um and by just kind of like lightly petting him on his head it would ground him out and he would uh, get like get subdued um and that was something that i saw even though that was a defect that i didn't really want to like play up uh, when i would say that oh you just have to pet him on his head to like subdue him that would I- immediately draw a very emotional uh, visceral response from people it-, hmm. it immediately like personified pico and it was like oh he's like an- another little uh, little character that just needs to be taken care of
0: Yeah. So are you thinking about programming more sort of human reactions into future devices and interfaces that you're building?
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So even uh, with this current version of Pico is that uh, it's not just uh, providing, but he has these quirks. So if you don't say, for example, listen to him repeatedly, as an example, say he's saying like you have a reminder and you should get back to work, stop browsing Reddit um, and you don't listen, listen to him repeatedly, he will stop listening to you. (laughs) <laughs> uh, so it's like this kind of kind of thing just to like add a little bit of a uh, personality into him uh, so that uh, it's not just a device, but it becomes more on a companion side.
0: And speaking of Reddit, you know, how do you are you making these projects and then kind of just <laughs> throwing them to the ether or are you you're documenting them on video? Right. Yes. And then what do you do with them once they're documented?
1: Uh, so personally i always hated documentation right that was the one thing i was like hey I, I built it i've done all this effort now you want me to go ahead and document it which uh, but but at some point of time and this the, the first project that i actually like spent a, a ton of time documenting and then putting online was one of the first versions of pico um and the idea with that was that oh i'd spent so much time building uh, this out um and i wanted other people to be able to build their own picos so i open sourced the entire uh software i open sourced the entire uh the circuit diagrams um basically all the schematics, all the hardware, so that anybody could follow my steps and be able to uh, create their own personal companion. Um, And since I spent all the time documenting, I had to get it out to people. And I thought the best way of getting out uh, was to put it on Reddit, because up until then, I had just been like a consumer of content on Reddit. And I was like, okay, let me now contribute back in some way. Um, And before I kind of knew it, that post like spiraled up uh, Reddit, it reached the top of uh, Reddit's front page and became one of like uh, the the highest rated uh, or the highest uh, voted post on Reddit's DIY um, subreddit of all time. So, uh, and that was kind of my first introduction with how to get your project out there into the world. Hmm. It, it happened completely by accident. I didn't really have any intention that, oh, this is how it would go. But that was definitely my first taste of it. And since then, I have definitely like utilized these platforms and Reddit and Twitter in particular to get my projects out there and in front of the people that I want uh, to experience. It and, with. and
0: what has that afforded you, do you think? Like be, having this exposure on Reddit I mean, a lot of, you know, a lot of people maybe who listen to this podcast are artists and they're thinking about how to get mm-hmm. their work out into the world. Yeah. Or makers, right? And you put this piece out and it reached the front page of of the maker section of Reddit. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah. Uh, and what was the reaction like? Did people contact you and build their own Picos? And- I mean, the
1: reaction was great. I mean, so um, I... I got a bunch of press coverage mm-hmm. that came out of it. And that's like the first thing when you once you reach the top of Reddit with something interesting, you're bound to get an inflow of uh, of press coverage. I got uh, afforded me a lot of opportunities that uh, that came my way in, in terms of work, in terms of networks, in terms of connections. um, And and also, yeah, it, it was the start of what eventually became me producing 75 Picos and selling them um, so that other people around the world could build them out as as kids. So so it, it definitely helped in more ways than I can kind of more ways that I would have ever imagined. And I've kind of like tried to continue using social media as that way to like further my network as well as further my work. Hmm. Uh, so, so, and, and Reddit is kind of like, it's a difficult beast to tame, right? You don't know what's going to work, you know, but, but there are definitely ways, there are definitely strategies that you can use and there are definitely communities that you can kind of like go after depending on the type of work that you create to best get your word out there.
0: Do you ever find that you're making projects for a specific Reddit community nowadays because you're so, you've got so much success through Reddit. Does it affect the projects that you make in some way?
1: Um, I don't think I'm uh, designing projects specifically for Reddit communities, but that is definitely a variable that I keep in the back of my head. Hmm. Because I think oh, for me, it's not so much about, see, uh, at, at this stage, like I've got enough press coverage that I don't really, th- that is no longer a motivating factor for me. Uh, definitely at one point of time, it was that, hey, can I can I do this? Can I, uh, can I create multiple viral projects? And like, is there some formula that I can come up with uh, that will guarantee success um, in social media? But I think for me now, it's more that, if something does well online, it's because it struck a chord in a certain way. So it's more not more about like, oh, um, what will it bring me? It's more that can I design something that strikes a chord with a large subset of people? Um, and that's a, a lot about like creating products or creating art. Is that uh, can you like or can you connect or can people associate or connect with it in in some way? Yeah, that's and that and that true. press t- turns out to be like a good metric or indicator of it, or like social media success turns out to be a good metric of it.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, so, is there a particular technology that you feel right now is completely overhyped?
1: Technology that's completely overhyped. Uh, so I'm I think I'm like a techno optimist. Okay, so <laughs> so I don't really. Uh, I don't really want to say that there's a particular technology that is that is overhyped because I feel like even if a technology doesn't do as well as the media hypes it up to be or as the amount of investment that has gone into it, it definitely affords some section of people a creative outlet. So as long as maybe this is still not the time for VR or AR to become mainstream. But at the same time, it is uh, given several... Uh, creators and artists, including me, a way to express themselves um, and a way to like kind of create new and interesting work. So so yeah, I, I don't think anything is overhyped as long as it serves some purpose to some group of people.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, so we're almost done here. Uh, before we finish, though, we have a rapid-fire question section on this oh, podcast. Okay, okay cool uh, every, <laughs> every week I throw some rapid-fire questions at you. Just you know, the first thing that comes to your head, uh, don't overthink it. Um, because you make a lot of projects with superpowers involved, uh, what would your one superpower be if you could choose anything?
1: Uh, time travel. <laughs> and why? <laughs> uh, just, I just want to see what happens in the future. Oh, and then I can build it, uh, build it right now. I would, oh, build, I I would go forward.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you'd go forward, figure out what's going on in the future, and then you'd, and bu- build, it now. you'd build what they have in the future or something different?
1: Um, I might just build what they have in the future. Okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, um, if you had to invent one device to solve a problem happening in the world today, mm-hmm. what would it be?
1: Uh, teleportation device. And and just just to solve the problem of transportation and all, all the uh, amount of cars on the road, the amount of airplanes in the sky, the amount of carbon emissions that are happening from all of this, uh, so that definitely just teleportation get people from A to B in the shortest possible of time with the least amount of environmental damage.
0: All right, you you've thought these through, I can tell.
1: <laughs> I, I didn't seem like it, but uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> what was your last Halloween costume?
1: My last Halloween uh, costume was um, Aladdin.
0: Yeah. <laughs> right. Maybe we should put a picture of that up in the stories too. Um, and the last one, if you had to pick one food to eat for the rest of your life, uh, what would it be? Same food every day. Same food
1: every day. Yeah. Um, a burrito bowl.
0: A burrito bowl?
1: <laughs> yeah, because I think it has like a bit of everything in it. So it's the least uh, likely that I'll get bored of it.
0: All right. <laughs> Amashic, thank you so much for being on the podcast this week. Um, we're going to post some uh, links to your work online and we'll definitely put some of the uh, videos and photos on Instagram. Uh, Amashic, thank you so much. Yeah, well, Thank you for having me. Thanks so much for listening today. Uh, This is Gabe Garcia colombo for the State of the Art podcast. Uh, State of the Art is actually created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, We have a great, fantastic producer named Vanessa Wilson. uh, And our audio specialist slash miracle waveform master is Weston Stevens. Uh, So stay tuned for next week. Uh, We're going to have another amazing guest. I'm not going to tell you who it is quite yet, but I promise it will be worth it. Bye.